You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, so Exodus chapter 4. So the last few weeks, we have been looking at um, Moses and the call that God gives to Moses at the burning bush. We saw his hesitancies and his unwillingness to kind of respond to that call. The first week we looked at um, basically just his his lack of awareness and lack of knowledge of who he is, who God is, and really his understanding of God through his word. And God kind of spoke into those inadequacies. Last week we looked at um, just his uh, feelings of, of inadequacy to carry out the task. And so the first week we said that God calls each of us to serve him with an expectation that his presence qualifies us and his promises equip us. And so it's God going with us that enables all of us to do whatever he's called us to do. And it's his promises that give us what we're supposed to tell other people. And then last week we said that it's uh, through our disabilities and our inabilities that God finds capability. And so he, he enables us with those disabilities uh, to bring about what he wants to do. And so he works in and through and around that for his purposes. And so uh, we kind of ended last week looking at the obedience factor because where it all kind of hit an end was Moses really just didn't want to do it. So after God had spoken to every one of his excuses, Moses just flat out said, send somebody else. And so we talked about what obedience looks like. And we said that it's more than just doing what God says, that it's partnering with God in what he says, meaning we believe what he says, we desire what he says, and we do what he says because he's God and because he's good. And so I challenged you to evaluate whether, whether you obey that way. Are we guilty of just doing what God tells us to do, or are we partnering with him in it? Are we listening to what he says? Are we believing what he says, desiring what he says, and then doing what he says? Today we look at... Um, Chapter 4, verse 18, kind of the aftermath of that conversation at the burning bush. Like, what's the, the immediate response and the immediate effects of that conversation? So let me turn your attention to verse 18. It says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision." Our summary sentence for today, as God's child, my failures are defined by whether I carry out acts of obedience prescribed to me and not whether my acts of obedience produce particular results, since God may work through my obedience in ways I don't understand. As God's child, my failures are defined by whether I carry out acts of obedience prescribed to me 
and not whether my acts of obedience produce particular results, since God may work through my obedience in ways I don't understand. For our kids, I only fail in life if I fail to obey God. I only fail in life if I fail to obey God. What we're going to see through today's text is that we fail when we don't obey, not when we obey and fail to see success. Okay? Our failure is tied to whether we obey God, not whether we see success in our obedience. Um, we're, we're told here, God tells Moses, there's going to be a lack of success in what he's called them to do, at least initially. There's going to be some setbacks. He's going to go and try to carry out in obedience what God has called him to do, and he's not going to see the immediate results from that obedience. And then as we carry through this passage, we're going to see that Moses is actually guilty and failing in his acts of obedience, that there are things that he was already supposed to have done or already supposed to be doing that he has failed to do, and God holds him accountable for that. So we'll kind of see as the text unfolds how we understand failure in our life as believers. Um, This passage, though, is the immediate aftermath of what we would say is certainly a major spiritual experience in the life of Moses. Now, none of us have probably had this level of experience, but we've all had experiences before. Maybe uh, when we were younger uh, or for our youth, we go off to summer camp and we spend a week hearing God's word taught in a more isolated setting where the distractions of the world are removed and we're, we're with God and we're learning and worshiping God. We've all had that experience maybe, maybe at a conference in our young adulthood or later adulthood where we, again, get some isolated time to be with God and we're challenged in unique ways that maybe go a little bit deeper than just hearing from him on a Sunday morning. And then we come back to reality. We come back to our normal, regular life. And the question then is, will we do anything with that experience that we've had, right? As we come off that mountaintop experience, will it have any immediate impact on our life? And so that's what's kind of happening here in verse 18. We're gonna see what's Moses gonna do now that he's had this incredible burning bush experience. And what we see here in our text is that Moses' self-imposed exile is coming to an end. Remember, he's the one that fled Egypt. He's the one that went to Midian. He's the one that went into hiding. He did that himself, and that's now coming to an end. After all the questions and the objections, the doubts, the hesitations, the excuses, and the refusals, Moses is now ready to answer God's call. Now, you'll see as you read through this text, there's a theme word or a theme phrase that keeps coming up, and it's the idea of him returning or him going back to Egypt. It's him going back to Egypt in order to return to the people of God. Notice it says there uh, in verse 18, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt. The Lord said to uh, Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt, verse 20. That, that idea, verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, um, it's the idea of him going back to the people of God. Um, and this is setting the stage for that. Um, this section today also includes one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. Like, it, it's just really weird what happens here in um, verses 24, 25, and 26. Um, it, it's, it's odd, it's different, uh, because you have Moses almost dying You know, after all we've talked about, God's faithfulness and God's promises and what God's going to do through him, we're told that the the Lord came after Moses, that he he met him and sought to put him to death. Um, So you've got that weird aspect of it. And then you've got 
um, a weird solution to the problem, right? You've got Moses' wife stepping in and completing the circumcision of their eldest son and, and blood being wiped on Moses. It's like, what's happening here? And then why is it happening now? Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that as we uh, kind of wrap up today. But it is a, an odd passage that we come to today, and we'll try to wrestle through it together. Um, what we're seeing, though, in this passage, though, is that Moses is going to fail. And in my notes, I put fail uh, in, in apostrophes there uh, because it's, it's not a true failure, right? I mean, from the earthly side of things, we might we look at, hey, Moses is going to go lead the people out of Israel. And when he gets there, he, he just kind of hits roadblock after roadblock that, um, that there's, there's not immediate effects or immediate obedience. And so it looks like failure, uh, but it's really due to Pharaoh's hardness. And that's something that God is working and doing. Um, but Moses will ultimately fail here, not because he finds a lack of success in Egypt, but because he's failing in his obedience. He's not being obedient himself. And so we'll kind of see the ramifications of that as we get into the text, all right? So let's start with number one. Be sure you are obeying what you know. Be sure you are obeying what you know. Again, this is the immediate aftermath of the burning bush experience. What is happening here as Moses begins to take care of details needed in order to put himself on position to fulfill the call of God? Number one here, Moses acts in response to what God has called him to do. Moses begins immediately by acting in response to what God has called him to do. He first goes and gets permission from Jethro to leave, right? So he, so he goes to his father-in-law and requests permission to leave and to go back to Egypt. And there's probably two things at play here. There's, there's a courtesy piece to it, and then there's a customary piece to it, right? So the courtesy piece is that I work for you, right? And I need to go resign my position, We've talked about how he's become a shepherd these past 40 years. He's working with his father-in-law, tending to his flocks, tending to his sheep, taking care of his animals. Um, he, he's been working faithfully for his father-in-law for 40 years now. He's got to go resign that position. So it certainly makes sense that he would go and take care of that. But by resigning his position, he's really making it official. I'm going to do what God tells me to do here. Right? So he's giving up his livelihood, giving up his job. But then there's also a customary piece to it because Jethro would have kind of been the patriarch for that family. He would have been the, the lead, the head, the, the one that was kind of uh, over that family group. And so he, he goes and kind of submits to his authority and says, hey, I want to take my family and we need to go back to Egypt. I want to go check on my people to see how they're doing. Um, and so there's the, the, the piece there where he goes to get permission. He's, he's stepping out in faith to do what God has called him to do. He gets affirmation from Jethro's response. And this is a sign that God is opening doors in response to Moses' obedience. There's peace here that takes place. Imagine if Jethro had said no or had argued with him, and immediately there's some setback to him carrying out his obedience. But I think God is very gracious in allowing this conversation to go well. Right? This is Jethro surrendering his daughter and grandkids, and, and, and he's allowing them to leave, and, and maybe not a clear timetable on when he would see them again. And so there's confirmation, I think, to Moses that you're doing the right thing because there's a smooth process here where the conversation goes great. Um, we've probably all experienced this in some form or fashion where maybe we feel a prompting from God that he wants us to move in a certain direction, right? Maybe it's a job change or a, or a location change or, or something like that. And we're not totally sure if God's in it or if God's for it. And so we kind of move in that direction and we start to see doors opening, 
right? Like conversations that we need to have go well or uh, things that maybe we weren't expecting start to happen. And it's kind of like God just gives us assurance, gives us confirmation that, hey, as you're striving to be obedient to me, I'm going to open doors and lead and guide and direct you as a shepherd would his sheep that, hey, you're moving in the right direction. I think that's what God gives graciously to Moses here, right? He comes off the burning bush experience, but now God's not right there talking to him in the burning bush anymore. So he's having to kind of relay back to conversations that he had with God, relay back to things that God had shown him previously, but he's moving and acting in obedience and God's opening doors. Right? I think God does this when we come out of a summer camp experience or a conference experience where we're convicted. We leave the presence of God, maybe is how we feel, because we come back to earth. We come back to daily reality. We refer back to things that God has taught us. But, but even like on a daily or a weekly basis, we refer back to what God taught us on a Sunday morning. And we act in faith and we act in obedience and God will open doors and show us that we're doing the right thing. He'll lead and guide us and direct us. Um, and he does that here for Moses. So Moses acts in response to what God has called him to do. Number two, Moses is comforted by God's assurance and his presence. He's comforted by, by God's assurance and by God's presence. So he has the conversation with Jethro. God opens the door. There's peace there. He gets permission to leave. Verse 19, And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt. For all the men who were seeking your life are dead. There's some confirmation here that, that he's doing the right thing, um, not only from the conversation with Jethro, but now he gets further information. Now, this is stuff that we were already aware of, right? Back in chapter 2, verse 23, we find out that the Pharaoh has died, and there's a new Pharaoh in place, and the one that wanted Moses dead is now no longer there. Uh, Moses is just now finding this out. So he takes steps of obedience. He receives further reassurance that God is going with him. The threats of arrest, the threats of death are now gone. In addition to all these other assurances that God has given to him, God has called him to the task at the right perfect timing for all of his purposes to come together. This is the perfect time for Moses to go home, and God has worked and orchestrated everything for this time. Um, not that God had to wait for this to happen, right? Like, we don't want to read into this and think that, wow, this big threat, this big Pharaoh enemy had to come off the scenes before God could do what he wanted to do. I put in my notes, it's not that God had to wait, but he sovereignly chose to wait as this became his act of safety provision for Moses. One of the ways God can sovereignly protect and spare his people is to keep them out of harm's way until the threat passes. We see something real similar with the birth of Jesus, right? You, you fast forward to Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 23. Herod, Herod is looking to kill uh, the baby boys. He's looking to, to destroy Jesus. Um, and it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 20, or verse 19, but when Herod died, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. This isn't God's lack of ability to take care of his people until enemies are removed from the scene. It is God choosing to sovereignly use his purposes this way, though. He sovereignly protects his people, puts them in position where they can't come across harm's way, 
When harm's way is then removed, he sovereignly guides them to where he wants them to be. That's what happens here with Moses. He keeps Moses there in Midian for 40 years. Once the Pharaoh is off the scenes, now God is ready to work and move in ways that he had already planned. Moses gathers his family, but more importantly, he clings to the staff that God has given to him. Look what it says um, in verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So he's got that family uh, comfort, that family support system to go with him, but he clings to the staff of God. This is the, the staff that God has told him to take with him that's gonna, he's going to work signs and wonders through, right? So he's already done those signs we looked at last week where, he, uh, where God turned the staff into a snake, and um, God says, take that staff with you because that's how we're going to kind of work and move amongst the people. And so he's clinging to that staff. It represents the presence and the promises of God for him. What we see here at the beginning of this passage is Moses is taking steps of obedience. He's doing what God's called him to do. He's doing as much as he knows to do in that time, which gives us this implication. Do what you know God has called you to do in order to get where God knows he wants to take you. Do what you know God has called you to do in order to get where God knows he wants to take you. The doors keep opening as Moses keeps obeying. The same is typically true for us. We may not know how to get to the destination we desire, but simple acts of obedience will most likely get us there eventually. God's orchestrating and working and moving in all of this. He's giving Moses steps to take, go back to Egypt. And Moses does that. He takes the steps to go back to Egypt. Oftentimes we need to take these these little steps of obedience to get ultimately where Jesus wants to take us. I remember um, years ago, uh, I was... 27 years old, uh, 26, 27 years old, and really wasn't sure where my life was headed at the time. I mean, according to my timetable at 26, 27, I was going to already be married with kids, working in a church as a youth pastor, uh, potentially teaching at a Christian school on the side. Like, like these were my plans. I had graduated college and, and, and had all of this laid out. This is where I wanted to be, and this is what I wanted to be doing. And I remember uh, again, 26, 27, me and uh, John Wallace uh, were, were interviewing at different schools, trying to find jobs to teach at. He was married and, and kind of had his life moving in the direction that I thought my life was going to be headed. And I was single and, and confused as to what God was doing. I remember uh, we were staying in a hotel together because we were circulating all over Georgia trying to find a job. And, and I remember just laying in bed, praying to God and saying, I don't, I don't know where I'm supposed to be right now. I just don't know because my timetable's completely thrown off right now. Like, you're, you're not opening the doors that I thought you were going to open. And um, I remember just feeling like a peace and assurance that I needed to do what, what, I, what I knew I was supposed to be doing. I was just supposed to be faithful and that God was going to open the doors according to his timing. It wasn't long after that that I met Lauren. We got married. We ended up at Mount Gilead uh, working as a youth pastor. And it wasn't long after that that, that God pressed in and, and gave me desires to to, to plant a church here and to work at Trinity. And, and I'm going to tell you, if you'd have told me at 23, 24, 25, 26, like, hey, you're going to be married, kids, pastoring, working as a principal, I'd have been like, yeah. Like, like, I've had those desires since high school. It just took longer to get to that spot than I thought. Um, but it was always in God's perfect timing. 
right? And, and the lessons that he taught me during that time was be faithful right now, be obedient to what you need to, what you need to do right now, be obedient to what you know to do right now, and I'll get you where I want you to be down the road. That's what Moses is doing here. He's just being faithful, and he's carrying out acts of obedience in the immediate, and God's going to get him where he wants to take him eventually. Number two, we rest assured when we're obeying but not winning. Rest assured when you are obeying but not winning. We can rest in our obedience. And God gives this information to Moses. He says, In verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. That's that's Moses' part. That's Moses' job. Moses is to go, to go back to Egypt, to take all the steps necessary. Go talk to your father-in-law, quit your job. Go talk to your father-in-law, get permission to go. Get your family together, get the staff together, get all the, the family moving in that direction back to Egypt. Get to Egypt. Go before the people. Do the signs and wonders that we've talked about. That's your job, Moses. Then God chimes in with what he's going to do. I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. He tells Moses up front, I'm telling you to go do something that's not going to work. You're going to go tell the Pharaoh to let my people go, and he's not going to do it because I'm going to prevent it from happening, basically. I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't. But there's an act of obedience that Moses is called to here. He's not called to find success. He's called to be obedient. He's called to be obedient here. Number one, Moses is to act in response to God's word by relying on God's power. Moses has a clear task to complete. He's to work the signs, to work the wonders given to him by God and make the appeal to Pharaoh for the release. That's what he's supposed to do and he's supposed to act in obedience to that. And number two, he must see any temporary failures in the big picture of God's coming victory. All the discussion that's happened at the burning bush and then even this discussion that's happening afterwards is the idea that eventually God's people are going to be released. Eventually they're going to make their way back to that mountain and worship him together. It's just not going to happen as quickly as Moses might think. It's not going to happen immediately with him showing up and just being obedient. There's going to be some delay here, and it's intentional delay. It's designed delay. God's working and moving in ways that maybe Moses won't fully understand. But Moses has a job to be obedient, not to be successful. This outward failure is coming Pharaoh's not going to respond well. He will not obey, and he will be uh, hardened further through the process. Rather than the signs and the wonders that Moses is going to do, rather than in making a believer out of Pharaoh like it would do for Israel, it's going to harden him. And that's where Moses has to remember, again, God has assured him that Israel is going to believe him. Pharaoh is not. There's going to be some success. There's going to be some fruit that comes from his obedience, but not all the way fully. Pharaoh's going to be hardened by it. But that ultimate victory is still certain. Those temporary setbacks are to be seen as part of God's plan for showcasing his power over the enemy. Fast forward to Romans chapter 9, and we see God's further insight into this. As Paul is speaking in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
And God raised Pharaoh up, the hardened, rebellious, uh, disobedient Pharaoh. He raises him up. He puts him into power. He brings him to the, to the forefront so that everybody can see his power on display as he defeats him. Helps us to see that Moses' future is not a collection of random events that's going to be put together. No, it's, it's God working and moving in specific ways. Because God knows this future and it's controlled by him. And so he's moving everything to this ultimate victory that's to come. I think God wants to to have these setbacks so that ultimately he is guaranteed to get all of the glory. Because look what it tells us back in chapter 2, verse 19. Actually, chapter 3, verse 19. He says, you're going you're gonna to go, and they're not, he's not going to listen. Verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Moses won't be able to do this unless God intervenes. And so that's the stage that God's setting. I mean, he wants the children of Israel who are watching and kind of seeing. Because remember, he's actually going to go back and do this. And what's the immediate impact of him going before Pharaoh? Does anybody remember? He obviously says no, but what, what's the other result of it? It gets harder, right? Like the, the Pharaoh reacts, and, and not only does he reject the offer to let the people go, he makes it harder. He says, oh, you, you think you guys have time to go worship in the wilderness? Like you can take three days off and not see your, your productivity impacted? Well, then that means we can, we can increase our expectations for you, right? So we're going we're gonna to ask you to build more, and we're going to give you less materials because you probably have time to go collect your own materials. I mean, it's like a major setback because then the people are like, wow, like Moses, what a great leader. Like you just really messed that up. Like you just went before him and did a poor job of getting us released. You just made life worse for us. I mean, that's to show God's power because when it happens, it's not because of Moses. It's because God intervenes and God does it. God is going to show us what a father looks like. Man, I love the the tie-in that that God has here with Moses and in discussing what he is to say to Pharaoh. Look what it says in verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. There there are rights and privileges that come with being the, the creator of the universe's children. Think about that. Like, up to this point, there's not really a concept of God being a father to his people. This is what we call progressive revelation, right? God reveals himself. He reveals himself to everybody through creation. Like, we can know things about God, but then specific things about God, he has to tell us if he wants us to know those things. And so the Bible is this big progressive revelation of where he's, he's cluing us in more and more to who he is and what his plans are. We just happen to be benefiting from the fact that we live towards the end of everything. And God has given us his word. So we live in a day and age where we have all of the Bible together and we can see and know who he wants us to know about him. But at this time, they don't have a concept of him being a dad or a father to them, but that's what he's going to then reveal to them. This is what a dad looks like. This is how a dad cares for his children. This is how a dad protects his children. Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I'm going to come after your son. And this is the threat that's given to Pharaoh. He's like, look, 
Let my son go or I'm going to take your son. Let my son go or I'll come take your son. And we enjoy this privilege of seeing God as our father. Even though we are not Jewish descent for most of us, right? Like we can't claim to be a Hebrew. We can't claim to be an Israelite. We're not Jewish. But Galatians chapter 3 talks about how we enjoy this same privilege too. Again, going back to, we're studying Exodus because this is us. This is our history. This is our God. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. All of us, if we're believers, by faith, we have been grafted into the family of God. We have been adopted into his family. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. He will always care for his at the expense of others. He says, Pharaoh, if you don't do this, like I'll come after your kids. I'll come after your children, because you will let my people go. You will let my children go. He's revealing himself as a father. He graciously is going to give Pharaoh fair warning that this will happen. This is where the end will go if he refuses to let the people go. This is where we're headed if we need to go that route. It's assurance to Moses too. Assurance that when he sees those setbacks, he knows the end of the story. He knows where this thing is headed. The firstborn of Pharaoh will die if he continues to resist. The care demonstrated by God as a father is to become known, previously unknown, like we said. Look what he says in Hosea chapter 11. So one of those minor prophets that we looked at a while back, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. This is God showing who he is as a father, even as a father to a child who rejects his love and kindness. He keeps loving, and he keeps showing the kindness. He's giving us a picture of what the, the earthly dad is supposed to be. And some of us have, have, or have had earthly dads like this, and some of us haven't. Right? Some of us have been able to see a dad imaging well who God is through their fatherhood. Others of us have seen that perverted where we haven't seen that imaged well. Whether you've had the dad or not had the dad, here's the picture of what dad is supposed to look like. It's a dad who fights for us. It's a dad who loves us, who shows kindness to us. Even when we rebel against him, he keeps coming after us. He keeps coming after us. And this is how God has revealed himself to us. We can take great comfort in that. The implication for us is that God is at work and doing. We are simply called to obey, not to be successful. Tells Moses, you've got a role to play. Be obedient in it and know that your obedience isn't going to produce the fruit that you would think right away. But I'm working and I'm moving and I'm doing. And that has implications for our life too because 
for some of you, you, you are living in obedience, but you're not seeing necessarily the results. Maybe, uh, maybe some of us have, have strived to be obedient, and we're not seeing the spouse or the kid or the job that we've desired for so long, right? And we can't blame him for that as though, hey, you owe me for my obedience. Where's the success story at? Right? We keep trusting him and we do what we're called to do. We obey and that's where our success is, not in the fruit of our obedience. We only fail in life if we don't obey him. Right? We trust him with the results of our obedience. Moses is supposed to go and be obedient and then God's supposed to take over with the results of it. God is at work and he is doing. We simply are called to obey, not to be successful. All right, let's look at the weird part of this passage to wrap up today. Number three, make sure you are not failing in obeying. Make sure you are not failing in obeying. So Moses has a conversation with Jethro. Jethro's like, yeah, go. Moses is like, okay, wife, kids, let's go. Let's get on the donkey. Let's head back to Egypt. God starts communicating with him. Hey, go back to Egypt. Don't forget, you're going to do these signs. Again, here's how this is going to go. Pharaoh's not going to let him go. I'm going to harden his heart. This is how it's going to play out. Verse 24, at a lodging place. So before they get back to Egypt, at a a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. It's still just as weird after I read it one more time. Like, um, even talking about it in the context of the other verses, it still feels like it's just kind of thrown in here out of nowhere. Now, it's important that we go back to Genesis chapter 17 so we get a little bit of context of the expectation, okay? Up until this point, you got to remember, like, the law hasn't been given yet. We know that comes after they lead Egypt, right? So there's no Ten Commandments to follow, there's no rules and regulations for how Israel's supposed to operate as a nation as a nation, because technically they're just now becoming a nation and they don't even know they're a nation yet, right? Because they were just a big family group that went to Egypt. They've been uh, you know, just blossoming, blossoming down there to where now there's kids running around everywhere. They've grown up to be adults. I mean, there's just a, a big group of people now. They don't see themselves as a nation yet. So none of that has been written yet. But there are some obligations that God's people were to hold to as his covenant people. And those were given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. You read in Genesis chapter 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncertain, here's the, here's the key part, verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We have every reason to believe that Moses knew this. 
right? Yes, he was raised in Egypt, but we know that he was raised with his mom and his dad in the Hebrew culture long enough, the book of Hebrews tells us, for him to choose to be a part of his people over the riches of Egypt. So there was enough ingraining and teaching in him for him to know as much as they could know about Yahweh at that time, right? Fully expect that he would know this, that he is supposed to be circumcising his male children, and he is not. Now, we could speculate and and stay here all day trying to figure out exactly what's happening here in Exodus chapter 4. I don't want to do that. Um, What I do want is for us to see what, what I think we do know and what we don't know, and then kind of draw some application as we wrap up, okay? What we do know here. What we do know from this passage is that circumcision is a failure issue here for Moses. He has not done what he knew to do. So again, is he going to fail when he goes to Pharaoh and tells the people to be let go and Pharaoh says no? That's not failure. That's not failure. That's obedience and God using the obedience in ways that maybe we would do differently, right? Eventually, there's going to be victory, but not right away. That's not failure on Moses' part for him to go tell Pharaoh to do something and for Pharaoh to say no. It is failure for Moses to know that he's supposed to be doing something and not doing it. And the same would be true for us. So, so let me go ahead and get you in the mindset of thinking about your own life. Things that you know, things that you have been taught, things that you have heard for our youth, things that your parents have ingrained in you that you are supposed to be doing or things that you are not supposed to be doing. You are accountable to that. And you are failing if you're not obeying it. If you're disobedient to God or your parents, you are failing in life right now. It's what it looks like to be a failure. It's not to be unsuccessful in the eyes of the world because Moses would have looked unsuccessful, right? He tried to lead lead Israel out and and the people didn't respond to him. So he has to go to Midian for 40 years. Now he's going to go back on this victory tour of like, hey, here I am, I'm back. And he's going to go before Pharaoh and he's going to make the whole thing worse for the Israelites. But he's not a failure except when he fails to be obedient. He fails here. We know in the future he'll fail when God tells him to speak to the rock and he strikes the rock. That's when he's failing, not when he's not producing, not when the children are grumbling and complaining. He's not a bad leader because the people grumble and complain. That's on them. He is a bad leader when he's not being obedient to God. We have a responsibility to be obedient when we know that God has called us to certain things. It's proof of sonship. It's proof, it's the distinguishing mark of God's people in the Old Testament, and it's missing from him. And it was not going to be tolerated by God. Now, what exactly is happening here? I don't know. But we do know that God makes it obvious that whatever is happening to Moses, right? Like, is he sick? Is he having a seizure? Like, what does it mean that, that God met him and sought to put him to death? Because he seems almost uh, unable to carry out the circumcision himself. Like, Zipporah has to step in and do it. Because maybe he is so sick. Some commentators speculate that he is seizing in front of her because God has met to deal with him. We know that God has made it obvious here that this is a spiritual thing and not a physical thing, and that it's a divine response and not a demonic one, right? So what seems to be clear as Zipporah is watching this play out is that something happening here is spiritual, not physical, right? Like this isn't my my husband having a heart attack or a normal type of a seizure. God is doing something to him, and it's God, not Satan, not any other force. Like this is a spiritual issue, 
And she goes into immediate action to try to do something about it. What we don't know, we don't know um, how God attacked. We don't know how Zipporah knew that circumcision was needed here. Now, don't forget, her and her family were offsprings of Abraham as well, right? We talked about this, like Abraham had other kids besides um, Isaac. And so they were technically tied to Abraham, just not part of that chosen line that was going to become Israel. They would have had awareness, too, of this covenant agreement that circumcision was supposed to be happening. So maybe she knew. Maybe it was kind of always in the back of her mind. We haven't circumcised our boys, but we should have. We don't know exactly how she knew to kind of jump in here and fulfill this circumcision, but, but she did know because she steps in and does it. We don't know why it wasn't done before. Like, why hadn't Moses already taken care of this? Was it an act of rebellion? Was it an act of forgetfulness? Had he just kept pushing it off and never got around to it? We don't know why he hadn't done it already. We do know that God had expected him to already do it, though. We also don't know what the tone of her response is. I don't know about you, but I've always read this as, like, her being really angry at him. Like, I I picture her, like, taking this piece of skin and, like, throwing it at him, like, you should have done this years ago, right? I actually read probably half the commentators think that it's a loving response to, from her that basically she's crying out and rejoicing that she has her husband back, that God has spared him. So you can read it in that context of, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, meaning you're my bridegroom still. Because the blood has been shed, you have been spared and you have been given back to me by God. Um, I, I don't know which one it is because we can't read tone here. I was sitting in a parent meeting this week and the parent was like, I'm glad we could just sit down and talk. And one of the teachers that I was sitting with, he was like, yeah, because you can't really tell tone in email sometimes. I don't know if you're angry or if you're not angry, right? Because words are just words sometimes in that context. I don't know what her response really was. Was she angry or was she rejoicing? We, we just don't know, right? We just don't know. Um, so again, what do we do know? Circumcision was expected and it wasn't happening and God was going to hold him accountable for it. All right, so let's see some, what can we know from this section? Number one, Moses is not exempt from his own continued obedience to Yahweh. Has he been called by God? Yes. Is he going to go draw lines between God and Pharaoh? Yes. Is he going to lead God's people? Yes. But God could do this without Moses if he needed to. And he's going to expect him to be obedient right? Like if Pharaoh's going to be held accountable for his disobedience, if the people are going to be held accountable for this disobedience, you best expect that God's leader is going to be held accountable too. And it's a great reminder for me, for the elders, like we need to know that as we seek to lead you as God's people, we are held accountable for the choices and decisions that we make, right? We were qualified at one time to be in this position, and it is our job to remain qualified at all times with the choices and decisions we make, the provisions and the safety measures we put in our life to make sure that we are never hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, right? We have an obligation to lead you well by setting a great example of what it looks like to follow Christ well. We can't ever deviate from that. God expects us to be obedient just as much as he expects you, if not more. Moses is not exempt, Our ultimate release and rescue is so that we can properly worship him, right? He reminds Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my people go so they can come serve me. That's the end result. That's the goal. To be let go so that we can be set free to worship and serve. And here Moses is not worshiping and serving him well. He's not earned elite status to appear before Pharaoh that exempts him from regular daily obedience to God and his word. What we're reminded of here is that the Lord treats obedience seriously. 
not like us who oftentimes are casual and self-excusing with our ways. And God doesn't accept our, our excuses for why we're not doing what we know to do. This is a reminder that if we know we're supposed to be doing something, we have an obligation to be obedient to him in it. Number two, Moses is not exempt from his own divine discipline from Yahweh either. God will not allow his true children to go without discipline. Hebrews 12, 6-7 tells us it's a sign of his love for us. What's a good dad do? A good dad doesn't let his kid continue to make bad decisions without stepping in and doing something about it. He's going to be a good dad to us. He's revealing himself as a father who loves his children. You better believe he will discipline us if he needs to get us back on the right track. The implication to keep the guidance and the favor of God, we must maintain an active daily obedience to God. To keep the guidance and favor of God, we must maintain an active daily obedience to God. To maybe make this last section not as weird, I had one commentator who really drew upon the gospel picture of it, which uh, to me I think is worth remembering. Right? You have the picture of God's wrath towards someone who has been disobedient to him. That, that's clear from God's wrath towards Moses, that that wrath has to be obliged for us to be saved. You have Zipporah acting on behalf of Moses, right? Her actions are counted towards him as though he has done it because his life is spared because she did what he was unwilling to do or what he could no longer do. The blood piece, I think, is highlighted as well because blood, we know, is needed uh, for the sacrifice of our sins. So you get this, this mini gospel picture here of an individual doing for one who cannot do it himself, blood being shed, and an act of one being counted for the act of the other. That's what Christ is for us, right? Christ comes to shed his blood for us, and he does what we have not done, and that's be obedient to him. So yes, we have an obligation to obey, but we know that we fail. We rejoice over the fact that we celebrate the birth of the Messiah who has been obedient for us. Application to draw your attention to as we close. If I want to claim the covenant promises of God, I must also accept the covenant obligations given by God. We can't just highlight all the promises that God gives to us and though think that we are exempt from being obedient to him. It all goes together, Right? We want to cry out to God and, and thank him for his love and his faithfulness and his mercy and his grace and his promises to us. We better be living for him. We better be living for him because that's a sign of a true son. Is that we've, we've, we've by faith put ourselves in a position to follow him. If I want to claim the covenant promises of God, I must also accept the covenant obligations given by God. Can I say, the question for you to kind of ponder as you leave today, can I say that I'm currently striving to be obedient and all that God has called me to be and do. Can I say that I'm currently striving to be obedient in all that God has called me to be and do? Again, it feels like a passage is kind of thrown in here, right? Like, why didn't we have this conversation when we were up at the burning bush? I don't know. I don't know why God didn't call him out for the circumcision piece well, well before this. But I think it's a reminder to us that if we're not careful, we get, we get going about the busyness of our life and we maybe even justify some disobedience because of obedience that we're doing in other areas. This is a wake-up call for us, though, because Moses is about to go and, and perform and be a part of the greatest rescue up to that point in all of history. And he gets stopped on the road back. It says that God went after his life because he wasn't being obedient and he knew he was supposed to be. It's a wake-up call for us to think through. Are there things that I'm not doing that I know I should be doing? Today's an opportunity to get that right with God. 
Use this as your wake-up call to evaluate your own obedience to him. We want to claim the promises. Let's accept the obligations, too, that we follow him well. Let's pray together. God, we love you, and we praise you, and thank you for this passage. We thank you for the assurance that comes from knowing that you are our Father. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself in this way. Many of us have had broken situations with our dads, and it it does us well to be reminded that you are a God who shows us kindness and love in superior ways. Even those of us that have had dads that that are great examples of you, they still fail. And so, Lord, we're thankful for a dad who never fails us, who loves and shows kindness in the most perfect ways possible, who's also willing to be a disciplinarian when we need it. When we deviate from your best, you call us back to your best, and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to see ourselves through the eyes of Moses, through the, the story of Moses. God, help us to be people who are, who are striving to be obedient to you with as much as we know to do at the time. To know what you've called us to and to take steps to be obedient in that manner. To not justify our obedience in some areas for why we're not obedient in others. Lord, help us to be faithful people that are faithful and fully devoted to you. Lord, reveal the areas where we haven't been. Convict us. We're asking for you as our Father to convict us and to show us your best when we're settling for less than that. Help us to be that type of obedient to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.